hello and welcome to this final part in our series looking at the women in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew 1. Matthew, as he writes, is looking to tell us something about his gospel and the Jesus who is at the heart of it. And he does this by highlighting the women that he has included in that genealogy, that list of ancestry that brings us to Jesus. So we're going to be looking at our last character today. It's Mary. And we'll be starting by looking at the verses in Matthew 1 that apply to her. And then we'll go on to hear some of her story. But before we do any of those things, let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gospel, for the way it tells your story, for the way it tells us about who that story is for. We thank you for the example and the understanding of you that we gain by looking at these women. And we pray that we would receive what you have for us as we learn today. Amen. Okay, so our reading is from Matthew 1. It starts with verse 1, but then skips to verse uh, 15, and then keeps going at verse 18 as well. Let's hear it now. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Okay, first things first, after a fairly good run, it seems I came unstuck with one or two of the pronunciations of names that time, we'll live with that. Secondly, I think it's important for us to pick up on just a slight variation that there is between translations. So in some versions of the Isaiah reading that is quoted here as the prophecy, the word that's used is maiden rather than virgin. So it's young woman rather than virgin. That doesn't necessarily need to trouble us. Uh, and I think our traditional understanding of this being, being a miraculous pregnancy is still important. But the reason I bring it up is because the original prophecy, which would have been fulfilled from Isaiah's uh, uh, inspiration by the Holy Spirit may well have referred to something different at his time than it does for Matthew now and that's quite a normal thing for Old Testament prophets to do. Their prophecies apply often in one way in their own time and in another way later. So let's crack on. We're going to be talking about Mary. We're going to be talking about what we might understand of how she did what she did and who she was, what she was like as a result of the text that we have about her. So first of all, Mary was asked to do something outrageous and horrible. 
by God. So we have this message from the angel that says, you are highly favoured, Mary. Be, be reassured and don't be afraid because this is incredible. Uh, it's an incredible thing for God to ask you to do. You are highly favoured and blessed. At the same time, it is a horrible thing for Mary to have to live through. So she's going to be an unmarried mother. Now, we don't quite know how the betrothal and uh, marriage to Joseph works. When that happens, at what point it goes from a betrothal to a wedding, it's not clear. It may be that between the conception of the baby, between Mary becoming pregnant and uh, the birth of the baby, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, it may be that they get married during that time. But certainly at the start, she's not married and it's clear that she is pregnant. So she is a social outcast. It's not so very many years ago in this country, within the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, that to have a baby when not married was outrageous. And girls who found themselves pregnant at a young age would often be sent away somewhere where they were out of their regular community, out of sight, to complete their pregnancy, have their baby, give that baby away, and then come back as if nothing had ever happened, because that was more socially acceptable, regardless of the emotional impact it might have on mother or baby. So we're sort of familiar with this idea of social normal and how far from it Mary was having this baby. So she was asked by God to accept becoming a gossip magnet at the well, on the street corner, at the community gatherings, at the village fate. Goodness knows what it might have been. As a Judean Israelite, she was asked to accept God's call on her, but in a way that she was never going to be able to explain to anyone else. Now, this puts her in good company. There are prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah comes to mind. So does Ezekiel, who spend years and years being persecuted for humbly obeying God's call to take a message to God's people. So she was asked to accept God's call on her life and she said yes. And that call and its acceptance meant leaving social safety and local familiarity and the comforts of her normal domestic life and the comforts and of her normal religious life too. Women in synagogue would typically not be on the ground floor where the action was happening, where scripture was being unrolled and read. She would be with other women upstairs and quite normally not necessarily being quiet either. So that kind of environment was also something that she had to forego. She had to accept that God's will for her meant coming away from those things. Because what God asked her to do was to carry Jesus with her as she left her home environment and went somewhere different. She was to carry Jesus for the sake of those who needed him and to carry Jesus in herself. She was asked to do what those who are asked to carry the good news do. And we know she was fearful. We know that because um, Gabriel says, don't be afraid. So presumably she was afraid. And I think it would be unreasonable for us to assume that after Gabriel said, don't be afraid, the fear magically disappeared. And, and suddenly she knew everything was all right all the time. And she felt emotionally stable and normal about it. That doesn't feel like regular humanity to me. 
And we know regular humanity is important to God because he asked Jesus to become it. And Jesus suffered. He suffered tiredness. He suffered hunger. He suffered torture later. He suffered the mob coming to attack him. He suffered covert attempts to undermine his authority or discredit his ministry. He suffered abandonment and ridicule. So normal human experience that's negative is an essential part of the humanity that Jesus inhabits. So let's not make Mary something I don't think she was ever supposed to be. She was fearful. And while she had been reassured, and no doubt countless times came back to this, well, Gabriel said, I'm not to be afraid. I will cling on to that. There's a good chance she also did feel quite afraid. Not least when she was making her journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem while pregnant. Scripture doesn't actually say she rode a donkey. doesn't mean she couldn't have done. But given her situation in life, there's no guarantee she would have had that opportunity. Lots of people did ride donkeys, but that tends to be those who were already reasonably well off. Maybe Joseph, with his um, small business acumen, would have made enough money to have a donkey, but we don't really know. So she left all those things behind and was fearful. But the thing that carried her forwards was obedience and faithfulness. And those things took her to where God asked her to go. So she became a teen mum. But remember, in that journey to Bethlehem, she was also part of a mass movement of people. Generally speaking, Christmas cards and the like show us uh, Joseph leading a donkey with Mary on its back, and they're alone, and they're approaching Bethlehem. They may well have arrived solo, but the route from Nazareth to Jerusalem was very familiar pilgrimage site. In fact, the whole pilgrimage pattern, kind of almost the industry of pilgrimage, had significantly increased at that time. So a, 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 a temple revamp had been done. Um, and as a result, more Israelite people, more Judean Jews, I suppose, were making that journey from wherever they lived in Judea to Jerusalem on a regular basis for festivals. So there was a regular route from Nazareth to Bethlehem that later Jesus will use himself. So there's a good chance they didn't travel alone because the chances are that Joseph wouldn't have been the only guy going back to that same ancestral home. So Mary and Joseph become part of this mass movement of people all over the Roman Empire to get to the places they need to go to in order to, I don't know, mark a cross or, or write their name or write their father's name, however it would have worked, so that the Emperor Augustus could absolutely demonstrate to all his citizens of the Roman Empire and those who lived under his control that he was the man in charge. They would go where he sent them and he would tax them if he wanted. It was a, it was a fairly standard tool of occupation and oppression at that time in history to make a census happen, to demonstrate control. So there's this mass movement of people forced movement. Then there's a, a giving birth in challenging circumstances. There's, there's a whole lot we don't know about that, um, whether, it, whether it happened uh, around animals because animals were kept in the home anyway, so it might have just been someone's house animals were in. Uh, it may have been 
um, a special place that was kept for animals. Uh, some of the details aren't as clear as we imagine them to be, but she gave birth in challenging circumstances and then within a fairly short time became a refugee. She and Joseph left. They, after the wise men had been, after the Magi had visited, they left Bethlehem and didn't go back to Nazareth, didn't go into Jerusalem, which we know they had done because they went to the temple there with Jesus for his circumcision. So having done one big journey, because they had to, because the pressure was on and, and that's where they had to be, they then they had to do a second journey, a longer one, that would have taken them into Egypt. And again, un under threat and some kind of coercion going on there, to, to flee from persecution that was coming directly for them. So she then brought up her baby in a foreign country, in a foreign culture. Again, because she was and Joseph were obedient to where God was sending them. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we get this same Jesus, but now as an adult, he's gone through crucifixion and resurrection and he's talking with his friends and he gives them an instruction. He says, tell the world about me. Start with the community, then go to the nation then go international. Tell them about who I am and who God is and the desire I have to rescue and reconnect and reconcile. So Matthew's gospel ends like that. But actually, as I hinted before, it begins with that too. Because Mary is an obedient ambassador of God's will, of God's kingdom, of Jesus. And he, she goes where her king, God, sends her. This ambassadorial role, Matthew wants us to notice, is at the heart of how the story starts and at the heart of how the story ends, which tells us something about what Matthew thinks the priority is. The good news is something that is to be taken and shared, that is going to involve getting up and going, that's going to involve hardship and disappointment and, and setbacks. The disciples discovered that in their training for being sent out. But also Matthew tells us about what this is like by telling us Mary's experience of going. And he gives us the backdrop of Mary's experience of obedience and ambassadorship by also telling us all the ways in which other women had to make sacrifices had to endure hardship in order for Jesus' line, Jesus' ancestral line, Jesus' family tree to get to the point where Jesus is born. The going is going to come with challenges and it, like Mary demonstrates to us, involves abandoning the familiar, being, un being away from the domestic certainties, doing something different. So, Mary is chosen, like those women before her, to be part of Jesus' ancestry. And this tells us also, as I've said before, about the kind of people that Jesus is coming to be with, to find. It's, these are the lost sheep that he is looking for. They are people who are scandalous and foreign 
and outsiders and prostitutes and the enemy and the poor and the powerless and the victims of injustice and the frightened and the manipulated and the brave and the determined. Because all of those words, all of those descriptions are what these women of Advent have shown us that they are. These are God's people. And the men? Well, the men that we've heard about in this story have been perpetrators of injustice. They have been unfaithful husbands. They have been illegitimate children. There's been at least one murderer. But there have also been those who have been kind and compassionate and welcoming and listening and brave. And so what we aren't saying is that the men are the baddies and the women are the goodies. But what we are saying is that Matthew wants us to understand that these women demonstrate something to us of the qualities of God's people, as well as showing us about the determination, as well as showing us about the sense of being marginalised and those being the people that Jesus is coming to give good news to, as well as demonstrating that willingness to be an ambassador for the kingdom. These are his people. And as Matthew goes through that gospel and tells people about what God is like and, and tackles the questions and has to answer and justify himself so often, he comes up against these Pharisee types. They are the antagonists. They are the recurring villain, if you like, that keeps coming back. And how many of these women that Matthew was talking about would the Pharisees say, oh yeah, they're like me. How many of those Pharisees would say, I, I want to be like Rahab, the prostitute. I want to be like Tamar, who dressed as a prostitute. I want to be like Ruth, who was a foreigner. I want to be like Bathsheba, who was just got pushed around and used. And How many of those Pharisees would say, I want to be like that? How many of them would say they want to be like Mary, caught up in scandal, having to leave the homeland? This is crucial. Jesus' message throughout Matthew is one of saying, and I think this is part of the reason why Matthew writes the way he does to the people he's writing to, is saying, see those Pharisees, see that Jewish attitude to the law, you see that Jewish attitude to, to what righteousness is supposed to look like. Jesus isn't about that. How many of those Pharisees would fit in tidy flower box synagogues with Israelites? Well, all of them. How many of the women who have been the focus of Matthew's story, ancestral story of Jesus, how many of them would fit in tidy flower box synagogues with Israelites? And how many of those women would fit with us in nicely organised, literate, clean, tidy churches? Are we creating the environment that makes space for the people Jesus came to, according to Matthew? Well, the good news is for those people, and this really is our so what ending. The good news is for those people, the, the scandalous ones, the outsiders, the enemy, the poor, the powerless, that's who the good news is for. So it's our job to get out of that synagogue style that the Pharisees were so fond of. It's our job to get out of that flower box. It's our job to be where 
the moss and the grass pokes through the tarmac. It's our job to be on those lanes that are forgotten, where nobody else really goes. It's our job to be in those places where if you were driving down in a car, you'd hear all the grass hitting the underside of the car. It's time for us to recognise that the good news is for the places where wildflowers take root, where the mortars got worn away from the brickwork on the wall. It's our task to find places and make places where the scandalous, where the powerless can come and find out about what Jesus wants them to know about who he is and what his love does about how warm and wide his welcome is about the reality of the need to turn away from sin to a life with God. We need to create and then curate spaces that make that as easy as possible for the ones Matthew wants us to notice. Finally, Paul, the, minister, the missionary Paul, the Apostle Paul from Acts, went to synagogues when he would find an audience there. And when he didn't, he didn't stay and he went somewhere else in line with Jesus' teaching. Our job is to follow that example and Mary's example and carry Jesus with us out and into the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of these women and all the ways in which they help us understand and represent the people that you came to save. Help us not to neglect the ones Matthew is showing us and help us to go and take Jesus with us, within us, to a world that needs him. Amen. Right then, we've reached the end of the Mary uh, story and so the end of the Advent series. But we are going to ask our three questions about this part, particularly focusing on Mary. Question one is this. Where are you taking Jesus? And on to question two. How are you carrying Jesus within you? For Mary, that's easy. She did it physically. Um, but for us, we're called to carry Jesus with us um, as an intention. So what are you doing to carry Jesus with you? And how are you helping that carrying to grow more meaningful day by day and week by week? Question three, how can you create a space where people who don't know about Jesus can feel comfortable asking about Jesus? How can you create that space maybe at home or in your workplace? How can you create it in the community? How can you create it in the conversations you have with friends? What might you actually do to make that kind of space happen? So there we go, we've reached the end of our Advent series. A very happy Christmas to you. Take really good care. Recognise and accept the joy of Jesus' presence with you. 
and I'll see you soon.